Ted Edlick is the featured guest for the Community Voices Roundtable held at the Alexander Black House in Blacksburg, Virginia. The day is Tuesday, April 26, 2016. Members of the Community Voices Steering Group are at the luncheon table with Ted. They're joined by interested community members, other PhD students, faculty, and staff. Max Stevenson, director of the Institute for Policy and Governance at Virginia Tech, the sponsor of Community Voices, has just introduced Ted to the roundtable. <laughs> I want to welcome Ted, and he can correct me where I get the timeline wrong. I always get one degree in the wrong place or something. He did his undergraduate work at the University of North Carolina, grew up in Manhattan, so went south for, for college to the University of North Carolina. Then he went to seminary at Union Theological Seminary. Then he got a master's in education at New York University. Spent a postgraduate year at Yale in a really interesting program that combined theology, politics, and ethics um, that Yale had for some time. I'm not sure they still have the program, do they, Ted? I really don't know. I don't think they do. Retired it after they graduated. <laughs> <laughs> he taught school. Um, and then he came actually to the Roanoke Valley and to TAP in 1968. Became the CEO of uh, this very notable nonprofit organization serving the disadvantaged in the region uh, in 1975, where he served there as CEO. And he's now giving, uh, we were just talking earlier, he's now giving programs about thriving nonprofits, having run one for a very long time. Uh, from 1975 to 2015. He's still involved there uh, as we speak in a variety of ways. Uh, Ted, people have told me about you for years, and I was absolutely delighted to meet you uh, when we met for coffee. It was a great pleasure. Um, he also holds an honorary doctorate of letters from um, an August institution up the, up the street here, Washington and Lee University. So it's a real delight to have you. Um, you can frame this however you want, otherwise it will be an informal give and take. Well, thanks, Max. Uh, uh, I thoroughly enjoyed uh, our coffee over in Salem, and uh, um, what has impressed me so much is uh, um, the, the, the length and breadth of your intellectual interests and community interests. And uh, so I've been the beneficiary of some of the contacts just in the whole business of theater and the use of theater and change, a uh, subject that I resonate to, but in, in many others. And thank you so much for uh, allowing me to be part of this discussion. Um, let me just say, I, I've just been a, uh, a very fortunate human being. I grew up uh, in New York City. Uh, I was son of a, uh, a physician, uh, which uh, afforded me uh, a, a college education uh, without huge amounts of, uh, of uh, debt, uh, and uh, which just in that case separated me out from a whole host of other people. I do remember it was so funny. We went to a private school where my brother and I, my brother became a distinguished professor of medicine at uh, UVA, started the Burns Center, started the emergency medical system of Virginia, and did many, many other things. But we weren't doing that well at this private school. 
So my father figured we could go to public school and do just as poorly for a lot less money. <laughs> and uh, so I did have the benefit of that. And of course, the school I ended up going to was not the worst uh, public school in the United States. It was Stuyvesant High School, which is one of the premier math and science high schools in the country. Uh, now harder to get into uh, Stuyvesant than it is Harvard University. Uh, so it wasn't like I went slumming at, at education, but I did used to walk across to the east side. And uh, I noticed, uh, especially the those Puerto Rican section I was walking through, a lot of young men that were sitting on the stoop who were about my age. And I began to wonder, and, and, and I later met them at the pool room on 14th Street, where I'd uh, I'd roll up my cigarettes and my, uh, and my uh, white t-shirt and had my duck tail and, uh, and they were very smart and they were great pool shooters, very clever. And I realized that, you know, here's a set of people that just as smart, maybe more gutsy than I am, but they got a different avenue. They got a different trajectory. I never forgot that experience. And uh, whereas my brother uh, kind of, uh, he knew he wanted to be a doctor, which was very nice for me because my father was a doctor, my grandfather was a doctor. They wanted me to be a doctor. I couldn't stand the sight of blood. So it was nice for him to take that on. But he knew from the time he was in middle school, he wanted to be a doctor and became a doctor at 22, gra graduating. And so his, it was just like his life was on a calendar. Mine wasn't that way. I, I didn't know why I was born. What was, what was this thing about being in a world in which I was going to die? All these other people in it. And I really, uh, I felt like, uh, you know, somebody had dropped in from another planet on what, what is this whole thing about? So it took me a long time to get some traction. And I did get some traction, really, uh, as I was telling Amara's class, um, through a group called the Westminster Fellowship, which was a very unique group. It was a Presbyterian group on campus. But you didn't have to have the right answer, but you had to have the right question. And we studied everybody, from Sarge, Camus, to Niebuhr, uh, to Tillich, to many, many other thoughts, which were very unusual, because most places, if you're in a religious group, you've got to have the right answer. This would be, you had to be the right question, like, why am I here? What does it mean to be a sexual being? What does it mean to be part of a community? You know? And um, so that was, I actually learned more of that than I did in my college courses, but at least I had a trajectory about at least there was some, some life going in some kind of a path that had a religious ethical dimension to it. And, uh, from reading the Old Testament, a people who I belonged to, people I, I had a sense of belonging to. And also a course of history that, that was about fairness, was about justice, which was about caring for the other person. And um, so, my, so I ended up going to seminary, I went up to Yale, and I was, I was telling Mary, one of the best experiences I had at Yale was I only took uh, discussion course, what do you call them? Um, you know, no lectures. Uh, seminars. Seminars, seminars, thanks. 
And, uh, and what I learned there was I could read these books and I didn't need to have somebody lecture me to tell me what was in it. I was actually fairly smart. <laughs> you know, and in some cases I could do a better job than the lecturer in understanding the material. So what I learned from that experience was I was pretty smart and that I could learn any damn thing that I, that I attempted to go after. That was a pivotal experience. Came out of seminary in 64, uh, The New Frontier, Kennedy. In fact, uh, one of our professors was close to Sorensen. On the weekends, he'd go down and he was part of the, the Kennedy think tank and then we'd come back and talk about uh, the various civil rights laws that were being discussed and debated and so forth. Ended up, my wife said at the end of my fourth year of seminary, I probably need to get a job. I had uh, three kids by that time. And that if I stayed any longer at Yale, nobody could understand me at all. <laughs> so I thought that was a pretty convincing argument. And I went, and I went back south because I really had enjoyed uh, the community in North Carolina. There's a certain warmth and friendliness of the south that there is that you don't exactly find in a bigger city like New York City. I like that. And uh, I got a two-church church field at a time that no Southern Presbyterian church wanted somebody from Yale to be their pastor. Too liberal, right? And uh, that was a great experience because when you go to, in Buchanan, Virginia, the small town, you know who the power structure is. In, 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 in Manhattan, you don't really know who the power structure is. You hear about it, but you don't know. You don't see them, touch them, feel them, see the way they operate. And then I moved uh, uh, to Rona. And that's when uh, TAP, the whole community action piece, was starting. And we have had this incredible guy, uh, Cabell Brand, uh, who uh, was a VMI cadet, was in World War II, came back from World War II after seeing the destruction, after seeing the concentration, uh, horrors of the concentration camps, and the rebuilding of Germany under the Marshall Plan. He saw what government could do. And he came back to the United States to dedicate 20% uh, of his time from then on uh, through the rest of his life, and he lived into the 90s, to help build a strong society. He argued that you can have a strong military, a strong economy, but if you don't have a strong society, you can't have the kind of country, country that, that essentially is able to make the most out of what its assets are, its people. And uh, so, what a great experience uh, that's been. And uh, so I've been fortunate enough to be in an organization that was pushing however, however uh, uh, in a friendly manner as possible, so not to uh, so uh, marshal the forces against us to run us out, uh, uh, to push for, community, for institutional change. We've developed water systems that have now been, uh, were expanded through our help. Across the Commonwealth of Virginia brought 240,000 people water and wastewater for the first time in rural areas. Millions across the United States. Developed the first pre and post incarceration program in, of any state in the, the nation, uh, which in fact was, had put on the ballot the automatic restoration of, of the changing of the Constitution for the automatic restoration of rights for felons 
in, 19, in the mid-1980s. Uh, and there hasn't any been, so we were way, way ahead of the curve on that. And we developed a number of programs, not only a, that, but a primary care program for children who were getting uh, their medical help at the emergency room, which is the most worst place in the world, other than not getting medical help to get it, because nobody keeps your records, there's no continuity of service, no kind of support. We created a program called Comprehensive Health Investment Program that is now in 20 different places across Commonwealth Virginia. So we were, and we were the impetus uh, for after a family of five uh, were burned to death in uh, substandard rental housing for pulling together a coalition that ex uh, implemented the first rental inspection program of, of, of inner city housing to assure that it comes up to code in, in, uh, in the rural area. So I've been fortunate to be part of, of that dynamic and also fortunate to learn something about uh, uh, leading a nonprofit corporation, which, as I say in my book, Navigating the Nonprofit Rapids, Strategies and Tactics for Running a Nonprofit Company, I was looking for the opportunity to share that, <laughs> just off the press in, uh, uh, on the 12th of April uh, this year, of learning something about how to operate a nonprofit organization, which is pertinent because perhaps the biggest institutional change that I've seen is the growth of nonprofit industry, which now is a trillion dollar industry uh, with at least 1.6 million nonprofits across the country, which 5.4 of our gross national uh, uh, product and has about one out of every 10 jobs are in the nonprofit sector. So it's been great to, uh, to actually learn as uh, I've been working with Cabell and, and others uh, about how you do this and to do it effectively. Uh, because I think there is a wide range of, of nonprofit uh, capability and success. Uh, and uh, it's important if you're in that business, just as it is in the education business, to do it well, and to do it with uh, some integrity and some courage. Uh, I, one of the issues we uh, hit on, and I'll say this and then I'll, I'll, we'll open it for discussion, but uh, we were looking at one point on, did we have a role in, in the education system? And we lost uh, a lot of automatic funding from the federal government because life changes and, and government funding changes. And uh, so Anna Lawson, who is a, uh, an amazing human being, uh, uh, she is a great philanthropist and also she's been head of the Board of Visitors at Hollins University. She went back uh, and earned a degree, PhD in anthropology, just because she wanted to learn about anthropology. Or, you know, and, uh, just this wonderful pe person. She and I went and had meetings with all the area superintendents and about was there a place that we could help to bolster uh, secondary education in our area. We were well received except for the city of Roanoke and we went to, to talk with the superintendent, the superintendent who had a 50% completion rate, graduation rate, looked at us and said, and he also looked at his PhD, on, of Harvard PhD at the wall. He kind of looked at us, looked at that, and he looked back and he says, I really don't think there's anything you can do we're not doing already. 
Well, that was wonderful. I couldn't expect it something really, I, it was one of those wonderful moments where you think, I got him. Because what we did, we didn't let it loose. Uh, we connected with Sherman Lee, who was head of the community, the board of community, the head of the Department of Community Corrections for all of Southwest Virginia, who happened to be vice chair of the school board, happened to be chair of of the TAP board, and who knew what happened to kids, black kids especially, who drop out of school. He knows where they go. We know now where they go. They go to prison, where we support them for $30,000 a year. And uh, so, to make a long story short, uh, we got the school board to endorse our developing a dropout prevention program that all they had to do was give us the names, they even resisted that, but we worked that out, of the kids who dropped out. And then we, with the help of some uh, social work uh, uh, students here at uh, Virginia Tech, went out and tracked these kids and said, you know, man, what's happening? You know, how's life going for you? And got them back either into school or into a GED program and essentially push the issue of dropouts. And so now with the help of Rita Bishop, who has been the uh, new superintendent of schools, uh, we're at about 83% of uh, uh, graduation rate. Now we didn't do it all ourselves, but we were, the, we were the ones that pushed the envelope for institutional change. The next area, of course, that nobody has touched is community colleges. Uh, Mary and I were talking about that earlier. 30% completion rate at community colleges. 30%. So that's, that's the new avenue that yet is waiting for some of you students and faculty members and others to really get in, and, 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 and others in the nonprofit and other arenas to begin to look at, well, why, why is this happening? What would it take to, to have 60, 70 percent graduation because most of the people who come to community college, not exclusively, are from low-income communities or people who've lost their jobs, right? So anyhow, um, I've just been lucky to have had such a great, great, great uh, opportunity to to learn. Once I learned that I really was fairly smart uh, about uh, about life. In the communities. So, questions? I have a question. Yeah. How did you develop trust and confidence in the dropouts? You know, it wasn't that hard. First of all, they didn't want to hear from the place where they didn't want to hear from somebody who represented the place of their failure. What they wanted, what they were willing to hear from, is somebody who wasn't going to. Be, just by their presence be another layer of reminder of, of their failure. And, uh, you know, after you've been out of school and you've got nothing to do, uh, it's not that hard to uh, offer some traction, some positive support. So that was very, very, very helpful. Uh, and I can't say, eventually we got some funding to get some TAP staff. And TAP has always had that, um, that being a little bit outside the system, uh, that people connect for with it. So it wasn't that hard, really. Uh, 
and the, and the social worker uh, students were wonderful, wonderful. Um, so I, I um, well, ask me a question. <laughs> I was wondering something. Um, I actually uh, was, I, I got a copy of your book. I managed to get it, you know, on the Kindle actually. Bless and, you. Um, I, I was actually shocked to see the name Project Discovery in there because in 2008 I did an AmeriCorps, um, up, at, up in the city of Alexandria, I did an AmeriCorps term up for the Project Discovery. And it was just a really wonderful formative experience, obviously an offshoot of TAP program, which I learned reading the book. And um, I just remember how much of an impact it seemed to be having on the kids, how um, literally there were just parents who you know, would, would come and literally, and they couldn't even maybe form the words in English, but they convey that, you know, they're, they're, they're really happy that, you know, we're actually pushing their kids through college and the kids are on track to go to college because of the program. Um, and then, you know, when I got here to Tech, there were even a few kids who I taught who are here finishing oh, up, right? Oh, wow. Um, Wonderful. So, you know, but then I learned in the book that it's really hard to prove that Project Discovery is actually having an impact. And one of the things we talk about here, I mean, in the you know nonprofit management um, studies program, is how to evaluate programs. And I was wondering if you have just like any other thoughts on you know how to not just look at okay, well, can we just count the numbers of the kids? How to actually measure impact and what maybe more of a smart, more precise way. Well, I think the um, the um, uh, the goal line has shifted from just mere entrance into college to college completion. Uh, so I think what uh, the Project Discovery Program is catching up with is what do we do not just to get a kid in college, but how do we how do we stand by that young person? So they can complete. Because the truth of the matter is, and it was very interesting, um, I'm good friends with a corporate exec who's just retired, and now he's taking some classes at Virginia Western. And he's been on our board, and he said, I uh, said, you know, what I've seen is a lot of these young people, something will happen. Their car breaks down, or their child gets sick, mm -hmm. and they can't come to class. So the, I, the real issue is how do we stick with these folks on a continual basis because the, the real end result is if they graduate. Because just because you graduate from college doesn't mean that you're going to be rich. But what it does mean is doors are going to open for you that would otherwise be closed. And you will probably, your kids will probably go to universities or colleges. So that is the, probably the best cycle of, of positive cycle of any, you know, of any program I can think of. But we have to catch up with, the program has to adjust. Now, unfortunately, uh, the program has suffered from opposition in the House and there is one delegate who's very highly placed, who actually works for a, a school system in a, in a uh, more upscale uh, community, who thinks that anything Project Discovery can do is ought to be done automatically by the school counselors. 
Well, obviously, he hasn't talked to a school counselor in quite a while to see all that a school counselor already does, not the least of which is the burden of paperwork they have to be involved in. But it's been a, almost an ideological thing to, to kill Project Discovery. So we're in the two kind of things. One is the opposition plus the internal shift to, to recalibrate our you know, what the program, what the, what the goal of the program is and how do you reorganize uh, staff and so forth, volunteers, to make it happen. I'll just say one other thing about Project Seven. It really came out of uh, Cabell Brand, who's this amazing human being. Uh, and one of the things he recognized was that after desegregation, fewer uh, people of color were going to uh, colleges and university uh, than before. Now, you would have thought, because of breaking of desegregation, you would have had more African Americans going uh, to universities and colleges. So uh, we worked out a deal. We worked with uh, Roanoke College, uh, principally Roanoke College, maybe a little bit of Virginia Western, to do a study why that was. And what had happened was that after the breakup of the black school, you not only had the advantage of, of better books and so forth, and sometimes better teachers, not necessarily always, but you broke up that support system for black students. Because in the black school, everybody who was there understood the way out of poverty was education. That was the way. And so every kid was pushed to the highest level. Even over in Lynchburg, you had students going up to northern uh, private uh, private uh, high schools, you know, to get them in the right flow. Well, that, you know, once you desegregate, we want to keep the black and the white kids from fighting, you know, so there was a shift. I mean, that may not have been the only reason, but that was a reason. Uh, there was a shift from that interest in the black student. So that's Project Discovery was framed to really uh, uh, create that kind of support. And it supported not only African-American students, but out in, in uh, Virginia, uh, low-income white students who had a lot of the same kind of lack of support problems that uh, that, um, that did. So I'm so glad you had that experience. That's wonderful. That's wonderful. It's a really formative experience and a great experience. Yeah. Yeah. And it's one that keeps playing on my mind as I think about, you know, how to evaluate programs and the idea of you know, just, just even the evaluation, you know, they, they, they try to track and keep in touch with the students, but if the students just lose interest and, you know, lose touch with the program, then there's no way to, to track their progress. Well, and what happens a lot, and this is true in the nonprofit industry, the whole, you're measured by how low your administrative costs are. So if you have under 10%, you know, you're a hero. Let me just tell you, administrative costs here at Virginia Tech is not under 10%. I'm going to tell you that. <laughs> You know, not, not, not at the United Way, it's not under 10%. You know, nobody can run a really good operation that's not, uh, you know, just having troubles with, you know, less than, I'd say, uh, 15 to 20% administrative. So you have the resources to do the planning, the calculating, to gather other resources to make programmatic change. So... Uh, so that's one of the dynamics also taking place there. 
Um, so what's poverty and how should we think about it? Well, you're going to have to think about it uh, economically for sure. I mean, uh, <laughs> one of the, when we first uh, were, uh, were together at the beginning of TAP, we were talking about poor and somebody said, well, lack of money. Well, I think that's, you got, that's a good way to begin to look at it, you know, uh, unless you're a Buddhist monk uh, or a Christian monk, a nun, uh, and even there you got sports, but you know, you got to have some, some resources. Um, I think it also, it's a lack of, it's also when you live in impoverished communities, a lack of um, the role models in those communities that kind of help people to aspire to the highest possible level. And the lack of, of support system, I mean, just parental support system. I've got um, six kids, and uh, my wife and I uh, got together about uh, 15 years ago. I adopted her daughter eight years old, so I actually had some idea what I was doing this time. And uh, it takes two parents to raise one teenage girl. I'm telling you, I'm sure it's the same with a boy, but it takes two play persons. We often talked about who's the playing good cop, bad cop. I was told, I, I said, okay, I'll be the bad cop this time. She said, you're the lousy bad cop. <laughs> and, but it takes two parents to raise a kid. You know, especially in this time with the access young people have to all sorts of, uh, of, of, of uh, you know, diversions and so forth. So the young person who's 75% of the kids in, at Euronic City Schools are free and reduced lunch. 75% are in free and reduced lunch. Roanoke is not, you know, and we got a great downtown, we got a $30 million art center, we got a whole sorts of great stuff. It's not like we are the impoverished place in the world, but that is untenable. You cannot have kids on that level of income without having an eroding of the kind of social supports that are necessary to help kids to aspire. Let me know. Let me tell you. I was, if I had been in that situation, I would not have gone to UNC. I would not have succeeded. No question in my mind. And uh, we've got to create that kind. And I was with Barrow's class. Uh, the, 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 the book that helped me, cause I, was, I was trained in belief systems. And that's what I spent most of my, most of my uh, graduate things about. I read this guy Lipset's book on American exceptionalism, and it wasn't because as American exceptionalism has been bandied about, we're better than everybody. No, it was on how we're different than, than other countries, compared us with Canada and, and also with Japan. And it said in American, uh, our belief system is on radical individualism. Everybody can make it and is expected to make it on their own as opposed to more communal societies, certainly like Japan, with as much more sense of, of protecting the whole, right? And the second is anti-government. 
I asked the last ca class, you know, what, what is, when you say government, what's in your neural network? Bureaucracy, slow, uh, incompetent, uh, inefficient, waste, right? That's the neural network in, in, that we have in this country. You don't have that in, in Canada. They don't feel the same way. You don't have that certainly in Japan. Government is seen as a positive entity. Uh, and the other one is the belief, utter belief in the free enterprise system is going to solve all problems. Well, it'll solve problems for which there is demand and supply and demand, but what about the problems for which there is no supply and demand? So, and the Capital Brand, who was, as Tommy Denton knows, a capitalist. He was a capitalist. At the end of his life, he said, the jobs in this country cannot be produced by the free enterprise system alone. It has to be a, a combination of government, free enterprise, and I have to say the nonprofit industry uh, together to produce the jobs necessary in this country. And that means a radical relook at, at, at what are our belief systems, you know, where we salute, right? Which uh, I think is, is difficult. And of course you've got, I'm enough of a Marxist to believe that there's a little, <coughs> little self-interest involved in, in, in making things go that way uh, for those who are at the top of the society economically and are benefited by it. Uh, but that was a big learning for me, because then I understood why we behave. It's not that we're behaving irrationally. We're behaving rationally, just not healthfully. So you look at an issue like health care, and God bless Obama. I mean, he's done more on expanding health care than anybody has in the history of, of this country. Oh, I, Medicare, Medicaid, that was huge. In the six in the in the sixty four in the uh, civil rights and anti poverty programs, but since that period of time, um, but we've got the most expensive health care, and when you compare our our results, we're way down on the ladder, and we still have a health care system because of either people can't get the health care or because the deductions are so huge they can't afford the health care, a huge period of a group of our people are now not, not here. And of course, what are the arguments? Well, we won't, don't want to have expand Medicare, uh, you know, and have the government because that'll be social, that'll be government running things, and you know how effective that is. And, uh, you know, it'll uh, take the private, the competitive bidding of the private, uh, private industry, you know, all those kind of belief systems come in and everybody ought to have a choice, you know. And so we support the, this, the basic system that we got, which is not a great system. I don't want to go into this, but have you ever, have you ever tried to figure out if you're privileged enough to have health care? what in the world your policy actually says? Can you imagine now having 10 options? Please. 
fact is that we already have socialized medicine in the United States. We've got military hospitals, veterans hospitals, they call it socialist hospitals. And uh, regardless of some of the negative stuff you hear about the VA hospitals, they're all run pretty well. Right. And uh, most most people who are not uh, recipients of, of, that, of, of that kind of closed system care have no idea what goes on. And um, the senators, congressmen, and presidents have access to those to the military hospitals, and the care that they get is unbelievable. In fact, in, in the VIP areas of those hospitals, you can't even get there through the normal portals that everybody else comes into. There's usually a private elevator someplace off, off the parking lot that takes you directly to those to those suites, and um, the, the staff is handpicked. And, and, and everyone has a private room. The rugs on the floor are, are, are as, as thick as your, your thumb from the MP joint to the, 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 the distal part of your thumb. Uh, everything is served on, on bone china with the hospital angle on it. A wine cart goes around in the afternoon. And people don't realize that they're that's how it is. And the senators don't complain about it because they get it for food. Right. Well, I'm not arguing with that. I, I do think um, I do think a system that uh, is a one-payer system, government-supported, uh, where you have options of uh, of, of choice of uh, provider, private and otherwise, is because uh, we also have uh, have a great um, um, uh, federally funded. Um, uh, Community clinic, New Horizons in, in Roanoke, wherever you get your services, but have a one-payer system. Um, but I think the fundamental thing is we've got to make a shift, uh, and this is a pretty switching ideologies is hard, 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 hard game to do. Uh, but if you begin at least to uncover the ideologies, then, then it's even easier because at least you know what you're, what you're dealing with and you can evaluate it. Because the, the ideolo ideologies that we developed also are responsible, I mean, radical individualism for the, some of that entrepreneurial drive in the United States. So it's not at all one way or another, but uh, it's the business of not, of not ch challenging these beliefs, which just seems to me is, one of the functions of academia is to be looking at these dimensions. Uh, I, you know, so any, so, but I tell you what. Uh, when I look back at my uh, my fortunate career, there's nothing nothing more exciting than being able to work in uh, some kind of uh, setting uh, and 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 pushing for changes that are uh, more open and, and just and fair and, uh, and you know, healthy in that sense. There's nothing better than in life than to do something like that. And to see, th we had one of the heads, one of the, uh, uh, and I actually met her because uh, we went around, uh, I, I learned to do a video camera, we'll do anything. <laughs> Uh, and went around and did a video of Project Discovery students from around, around the uh, state who had succeeded. And one was, uh, uh, I forget her name right now, but African-American woman 
who uh, had a, a project discovery uh, person, uh, counselor, who helped her to get into, I think it was uh, Virginia State, full scholarship. She ended up being the first African-American with a Gates scholarship to study mathematics and then graduated with her PhD working at a, a high-level research center over in Maryland. Man, and here's, here's a young woman born in an African-American community, low income, who might not have been that PhD uh, uh, student and, and researcher. I don't need drugs. Just, just give me that experience uh, every now and then. It makes you high. Ted, you know, you emphasized earlier. You emphasized institutional change. What do you see as the relationship between institutional change and the social change about which you're speaking now? Well, I think uh, one of the um, one of the factors are that most of our institutions work pretty well for the majority of us. It's, it's for low-income communities, they don't work as well. And that's true of public schools, it's true of the connection between police departments, it's true of uh, the case I cited earlier of a, uh, a community in Bonnetide County, 40 homes, and the uh, septic systems had ceased to perk there was feces in the yard, the health department comes along and uh, says it's not a health hazard. And you're thinking, well, the health department's working pretty good with everybody else. But you see, on the little list of, of, of scores indicating whether it's a health hazard or not was the fact of where they got their water from. Well, the water came from Iron Gate. So they had clean water. So when you added up the scores, it wasn't a health hazard, therefore they couldn't get the Community Development Block Grant HUD money to do renovations on the homes. Now let me just tell you, the health department's going to work pretty well for areas like South Roanoke uh, and even some of our um, middle-income areas. But you know, for this rural community out there, you know, you can have a health division, who's a, uh, official who's a really nice guy looking at the scores and say, okay, no problem. Now, I also said well, we got uh, Virginia Tech epidemiologists to, to show a link between the actual bacteria in the soil and the health records of the people there, and that added enough points to make it a health hazard. But it's dysfunctional for, for to have to go to that stress and strain and sense of advocacy so I think part of the institutional change is making the systems work equally for everybody, effectively for everybody. Healthcare, schools, job opportunities. And um, you know, sometimes it's confrontational, sometimes it's developing a project that actually implement, is an auxiliary to the institutions, like we did in water, wastewater systems. Uh, but it's, it's a combination of uh, pushing, pushing uh, to make those systems work. That seems to depend on the leadership of the organization. Well, I will say um, it's all about leadership. 
the, the truth about it, it's all about leadership at every level. It's about leadership in nonprofits. Uh, I like the, uh, but it's true about whether you're in the mayor's office, the city manager, where you're Flint, Michigan, you know, wherever you are, it's all about leadership. And I like um, uh, Jim Collins in his book, Good to Great, talks about level five leadership. And that is a combination of extreme willfulness, not for the self, but for the institution, the business, whatever, and humility. A ability to look at the brutal facts of the situation, but no matter what, be positive about the expectation for the outcome. The ability to, when things go wrong, to look in the mirror, and when things to go right, look out, the, look out the window and thank everybody else for their participation. You know, that combination of willfulness and energy and vitality and a sense of building relationships are absolutely key. I tell you, <laughs> Bristow gets, a, uh, Cabell gets a lot of credit, but Bristow Harden was the first executive director. And I'll tell you two great Bristow stories. Uh, it was very contentious during the uh, uh, 60s. There was the, there was the backlash political, social backlash came in pretty quickly. Uh, they thought uh, the, tap, uh, the workers of TAP were probably communists. We had the police department follow our workers, usually black and white, into neighborhoods to see what they were up to. The uh, KKK burned uh, our Head Start bus in the parking lot. Uh, there were all sorts of, it was contagious. So anyhow, Bristow, and Bristow was described as a, by Chip Woodrum, who was a delegate, as a mammoth stimulus on the horizon. I tell people, that's one thing I was never, a mammoth stimulus on the horizon. But he, he looked like uh, 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 Lives, had a voice like Orson Welles, and uh, he was, if he walked through the campus, everybody would look at him. And so Bristow had a uh, thing, uh, uh, a rule that if you want to come to his office, you knocked. If there was no answer, you went away and you came back at another time. So a number of us had gathered because Cavill was bringing this young president's organization through uh, from leaders from all over the country to learn about poverty here in Roanoke, Virginia. And suddenly it was knock, 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 no answer. Knock, 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 no answer. Knock, knock, knock. Finally, Bristow, all right, you blankety-blank XX, slip your XX under the door if you want to come in so badly. <laughs> so in comes this guy, trench coat, white hair, and Bristow looks up and he said, and who are you? And Bristow's with his feet on his desk, <laughs> all of us disciples around him. And he says, my name is Agent Settles from the FBI, and I'm not used to being treated in such a fashion. And Bristow said, well, it happens. <laughs> and he said, I need to see you, Mr. Harden, uh, on an issue of national security. And Bristow said, well, you know, I don't think I can do it today. He said, this is of utter FBI importance. 
I guess I can give you 10 minutes. Now, the rest of us were so glad to get out because everybody was rumored to have a FBI file on them because we were anti-poverty workers. And, uh, you know, of course, uh, FBI was uh, monitoring phone calls of uh, Martin Luther King Jr. Wasn't too much of a stretch. So we were glad to get out. So what he was there for was that he was accusing us of uh, using federal funds to support a Black Panther organization. So after uh, Agent Settles left, Bristow wrote this letter to uh, J. Edgar Hoover. Dear Mr. Hoover, um, I want you to know that if TAP is supporting a Black Panther organization, uh, it is cost only $11.87, the cost of some materials that we purchased, and this is the cheapest Black Panther organization in the United States. I would further like to recommend Agent Settles for retirement. Sincerely yours, Bristol Hardy and Judah. Now, now, Bristol didn't believe in, 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 uh, in t attacking somebody unnecessarily. He often said that if you're going to, don't pull a gun on the king unless you're going to kill him. Because, you know, that's the end of you if you don't do it. So he, he was no ways necessary. But when pushy came to shove and nitty came to gritty, you know, he was willing to take a stand. And I tell you what, there was no repercussions by J. Edgar Hoover's. We never saw Asian settles again. Mm -hmm. So that's the kind of, of, of tough leadership. And the other thing was, it, it translated over into what we did. Everybody was expected, we were expected to make change. You know, and you were expected to work hard. Uh, Bristol believed in a very low net, uh, low kind of organization. Uh, didn't believe in a lot of middle management. If people didn't do the job, then they need to go. Don't need to create layers of bureaucracy to keep people from doing a job when they don't really want to do it. And uh, so uh, that's the kind of leadership. And of course, it's leadership. Nonprofit leadership growing more complicated, but that's the kind of leadership that that you need to have uh, in any kind of organization. Leadership, courage, leadership with uh, 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 a good a good good sense of why you're there. Bristow always said the reason we're here is we work for the poor. That's the only reason we're here. If we're not doing something to improve their lives, we have no reason for being. Um, and I, you have time for one more story? Okay, so, so I'm, a, I'm a young guy, and, uh, and I'm figuring that Bristol's my PhD project. I want to learn everything he knows about people, power, how to run an organization. So Wilma Warren, who used to travel with him, she couldn't go on a trip to California. I said, well, Bristol, can I go? I'll carry your bags, whatever you want. And he said, well, you can, but then you have to take a week off at your expense so we can go to Mexico. 
And uh, we've got to make sure, you know, this poverty thing may not, war on poverty may not may end, but we may as well take opportunity, since we're in California at this meeting, to go on a, on a vacation. I said, well, fine, Mr. We'll, we'll go. So we flew into Alcapulco, and uh, Bristow, he didn't like the heat, and it was hot. I'm a young guy, I'm out there swimming, you know, going around. Finally, I come back, and I said, Bristow, we gotta do something. And he said, well, let's go to a bullfight. I said, well, I've never been to a bullfight. We'll go to a bullfight. So we go to this bullfight, and of course, we're the only gringos in the, in the whole stadium. And uh, it's a pretty miserable affair because the bull is confused. The picador put, sticks the lances in his neck and, uh, and weakens the muscles. Well, the first three bulls were summarily dispatched by the matador coming over the, uh, the top, uh, going through the shoulder blades into the heart with a sword. But this fourth bull, something really about this bull, catches the matador around the leg and literally rolls him across the rink. And Bristow, as on his feet, immediately said, Bravo El Toro! I'm thinking, oh my God, we're gonna die here in Mexico. I've just read, I've just read the ugly American. You know, here we are. So I, I'm kind of looking around like this while he's on his feet. Well, the, the, the uh, bull does it again to the matador. Uh, to the matador. Bristow was screaming, screaming, and suddenly you start seeing people around the place raving for the bull. So, so the matador panics and decides he better kill this bull quickly, so he asks for permission to slay the bull, and he comes over the top, the point of the blade hits the shoulder bone and springs across the, the place. Now he's got to ask for permission again. And Bristow's on his phone, bravo El Toro, with thumbs down. And suddenly the whole stadium, and I'm, by this time I'm on my feet too, you know, <laughs> bravo El Toro, learning a little Spanish here, and uh, thumbs down. And they refused to let the matador have another shot. And that's the day Bristow Harden saved the bull at Alcapoco. And it was that ability that when he saw something wrong, he didn't think about it. He didn't think about how are people going to react. He just did what, he, what was right. And it's the, I quote a, a poem uh, that he used to recite, but it's about one person uh, uh, raising your voice encourages another. And they encourage, uh, uh, encourage a community, and uh, they make they are the ones that make change. So uh, that's 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 leadership. That's that's leadership. On that note, <laughs> <laughs> thank you so very much. Thank you. Thanks, everybody. This has been a production of the Virginia Tech Institute for Policy and Governance, IPG, for its Community Voices program. I'm your host, Andy Morikawa. The Community Voices website is https communityvoices.info.